You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. So in today's landscape, the digital ecosystem is designed to deliver content that is targeting each of us individually. So each of our experiences on the World Wide Web is unique. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we take a look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, Carol Terrio returns. She's got an interview with Chris Olson from the Media Trust on how targeted advertising can enable election in interference. And we are back. Joe, why don't you start things off for us this week? Dave, I want to tell you a story. Okay. This is a story from my own personal history. Uh It's a very funny story. I'll be the judge of that. But back in the day before Facebook and MySpace, there was the very beginnings of social media or social networking websites. Uh There was a website called highschoolalumni.com. Okay. I think it's still around. I don't know. I haven't been there in years because everybody I want to be connected with from high school, I'm connected with on Facebook. But at this point in time, that was all we had. Back in my day, that was all we had. (laughs) Anyway, I was telling my boss about this site. I said, Mm -hmm. hey, this is pretty cool. It's a way to connect with people you haven't seen in a while. If you're looking for somebody, maybe they're on this site. And he says, well, let's take a look at it. So we go over to my computer and he's shoulder surfing and I type in high school alumni dot com mm. with an I where you should be. And if you look at your QWERTY keyboard, the I and the U are right next to each other. Oh, yes. So they are. Yes, right? indeed. Mm-hmm. So I hit return and the web page goes black and I'm like, that's odd. And then my screen explodes in porn ads. <laughs> right. Of course it does. With my boss standing over my shoulder. Remember, <laughs> yes, that's an important yeah, yes. part of the story. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's where the humor comes in. Right. Unfortunately, my boss. Is this a work computer also? Yes. Oh, oh yeah. Of course it is. <laughs> it a big just... red alarm just went off. Somebody at the IT department who was eating their lunch just did a spit take all over their computer because <laughs> right. alarms went off. Yeah. Where's Gary? What's he doing? Uh my boss kind of chuckles, shakes his head, and walks back to uh-huh. his desk, and I'm sitting there trying to clean this up because I've, I had to close all these windows. It was terrible, terrible yeah. experience. <laughs> but this practice has a name, Yeah, right? It's called typo squatting. It's a lot more prevalent than you may think it is out of the box, but think of all the damage you can do and the way you can take advantage of the way people read and the way people type. Yeah. First, you can capitalize on just people making typos like I did in that story I just told, right? Right, yep. And yep. then there's email reception, right? You can receive emails that are being sent to domains that are mistyped. Hmm. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. Okay. And then, of course, there's the thing we've talked about frequently on here, using them as phishing sites. For example, an L and a 1 look very similar, if not the same, in certain fonts, mm-hmm. right? So if I register the website oneinkedin.com, which is a registered domain, by the way. <laughs> of course it is. There is no website to it right now, but that doesn't mean there won't be in the future. Yeah. Then I can tell people, go to linkedin.com and link to oneinkedin.com. Alistair Patterson has a good story about this in Security Week right now, and he talks about an experiment by the Godai Group back in 2011, where researchers registered domain names that looked a lot like these companies, and then sat back to see what would happen. And one of the things they found during that time period was that they received 120,000 emails 
Mm. that were destined for the actual companies. And these things included all sorts of sensitive information like trade secrets, business invoices, personal information of employees, network diagrams. What could be better than a network diagram to someone <laughs> trying to penetrate a, net a network? Right. Usernames and passwords. So that's something that could be better <laughs> than yeah, a network yeah. diagram. And then uh, as well as service requests. But that's pretty impressive that just in six months, they got 120,000 emails with this kind of information in it. Not all those emails contained this kind of information, but some of them did. The growth of typo squatting has actually spawned the lobbying group called the Coalition Against Domain Name Abuse, or CADNA, which I don't know. They're pushing for government regulation. I don't know how you regulate this. I'm not really sure what that regulation would look like. One of the big problems is that most users, when they're browsing the internet, according to this article, still manually type in the web address they want to visit, as opposed to going to a search engine or using a link, mm, a URL, mm -hmm. like a bookmark that they might have. Right. Which I, I use bookmarks. And a lot of times when you start typing a bookmark, if the web browser knows that you're typing a bookmark that you already have, it will fill in the bookmark for you, which is a useful feature. But one of the things that make this possible is that domain names can be registered and then dropped without any risk or cost to the person doing it. For five days, you can say, nope, I don't want this domain name. Give me my money back. Interesting. And in five days, you can sow and reap a lot of havoc huh. and cause a lot of damage. If they do it this way, they can minimize the amount of money that they even have to spend on registering the domain names. They can minimize it to zero. Yeah. Right. They can huh. eliminate the cost. Let's say I register a domain day one. Day two, I start sending out phishing campaigns and do that for about four days, which is a really long lifespan for a phishing campaign, mm -hmm. right? And then I go to the uh, registrar and I go, nope, I don't want this domain anymore. And I don't pay a dime as a bad guy. So any money I've made is 100% profit. So it's just another way for these guys to reduce cost. Some countermeasures. What can be done about this? Well, from the site standpoint, there's a practice that is becoming more common of going around and buying up domain names that might be typo squatted. Right. Like, for example, if you go to acebook.com, Facebook owns that. Oh, okay. So when you type in acebook.com, you go to facebook.com. Mm -hmm. It redirects you. But you can't buy them all, right? Right, right you, There's right. no way you can buy them it's all. It's not like uh, Pokemon. You can't right, exactly. them all, right? I mean, there are so many different combinations. <laughs> the problem is, I think, intractable. This is good advice for looking for common ones. But if I'm really trying to deceive you, you might be able to stop most of the people entering wrong addresses by typos, but you will probably not be able to stop malicious actors with this tactic. So I think, again, it falls back on the humans right? The users of these sites to be vigilant. Watch for uh, misspellings in domain names. Make sure that you're typing them. I say use bookmarks so that you know that you're going to a bookmark that you have that's always been the right one or use a search engine. But even using a search engine, we've, we've talked about on this show how that can lead you to another suspicious site. I've noticed that, you know, a lot of times when you're using a search engine, if you mistype something, for example, into Google, Right. It'll come back with the search that it thought you meant to use. And right. Said, Did you mean to search for this rather than that? So on a certain level, they're looking out for you. Yeah, they are. But they'll sell ads to people that are selling competing products. Right. And you right. might click on that ad. <laughs> right. And right. they call that number like I did on my phone one day trying to get in touch with Comcast. Hmm. I wound up talking to somebody else. I had some choice words for that person. <laughs> <laughs> Look out for strange redirects. This is a real giveaway. So if you actually go to highschoolalumni.com now, which I don't advise you do, but <laughs> you can go there, right. it takes you through a number of redirects before you wind up at the final page, which has a big red button that says, I'm a human, right? But that button goes to uh, a JavaScript function that says, go to Visa. I didn't click on that and I didn't take the time to look at the source code, but I, I would bet that's malicious. 
So don't do that. Don't click on that button. But the redirects are obvious. You see that happen. If you type in or you click on a link to where you think you're going and you see like the screen flash and the URL change three or four times, you should know, okay, this is a red flag, a big red flag. I'm not going where I think I'm going. (laughs) Danger, danger, pause. (laughs) Right. Odd looking letters or numbers. Be skeptical about sharing personal information and financial information and confirm you're on the right websites. Um, Yeah, especially if if the website starts asking you for information that isn't relevant to that website. Right. For example, because one of the things that they'll do is they will pretend to be the website that you think you're logging on to. Correct. So they'll pretend to be, say, your bank website. Mm -hmm. This happened to me once where I was on my way into logging into what I thought was the account for my credit card. Right. It looks just like my credit card website, and they started asking for information that was not relevant to anything having to do with my credit card. Right. And so that triggered my uh, response, and I looked at it, and sure enough, it was a typo squatting site. And we talked about the Stripe scammers who had a redirect to a a website that looked just like the Stripe login, Mm. where... They, oh, yeah. You enter mm-hmm. your username and password. And the next thing they say is, what's your bank account number? Right. Right. Which seems like it would be necessary at Stripe, but it's really not part of the login or authentication process. Right. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. kind of a more subtle red flag. I don't know that a lot of users would have caught that. I don't know that I would have caught that. Yeah. You don't really know until you fall victim to these things. No, um, not at all. Hmm. But if something seems broken or strange, like images don't show up on the Web page. That's another red flag as well. But, oh. So really, I think this falls back into the into the human's hands, into the user's hands, because there's not a lot that can be done to stop it from the side of the, the site that you're trying to visit. And there are always going to be these malicious actors out there. And this lobbying group, Cadna, I don't know how much success they're going to have in lobbying for this. I don't know how big of a priority this is going to be for legislators, or I don't even know what any regulation would look like. Yeah, it's certainly good information. Um, and I think probably along the lines, most of us have fallen for something like this. I once found out the hard way, similar to you, that uh, <laughs> with a client looking over my shoulder, that if you don't type the Y in YouTube.com, <laughs> you will go to some place that is, uh, well, they have videos, but... Uh, <clears throat> Not the kind of stuff that you'll usually see on YouTube. So, right. uh, yeah, just be careful. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a tough one. All right. Well, that's a good story. Uh, my story this week comes from the folks over at Fish Labs. This is uh, a blog post written by Dane Boyd, and it's titled Don't Respond to Suspicious Emails. I think, Joe, it is natural sometimes for folks who maybe feel as though they've figured out that an email is a scam. Right. And they want to string the scammer along. They want to scam bait. They want, yeah, or they just want to waste their time. Mm-hmm. And we certainly, in our catch of the day segment, we, we deal with that a lot where people have done exactly that. Mm-hmm. And the folks here at Fish Labs are warning that perhaps that's not the best thing to do for a number of reasons. First of all, when you respond to the scammers, no matter how you respond, they know that they've got a real email address. Yes. This is a hot live email address. That's true. And if you figure that they are, you know, mostly just going after lists of emails, unless they're really targeting you, for them to know, to have verification that an email address is indeed real, that's valuable information. Yeah, it is. And we've talked about that before as well. One of the other things they point out is that when you respond, quite likely you will include your email signature. 
And your email signature has valuable information in it. Yeah. It has phone numbers. It has uh, a lot of times addresses. Yep. And this is information that they can use in future attacks. Mm-hmm. Also, interesting point that I'd never considered is that a lot of times your email headers contains information about your location. Yes. And so this helps the scammers know where you are. Mm-hmm. And so they can follow up with targeted information. Again, the, the, basically, the more information you provide to them, the easier it is for them to come back at you with targeted information that it's going to be harder for you to detect. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So uh, interesting article here. We'll have a, a link to it in the show notes. I guess the, the overall message here is that don't get too cocky, kid. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> I had somebody on Instagram send me one of these messages, direct messages on Instagram. Uh-huh. And I started down the road of, of toying with this person. Right. It's the beautiful young woman in the Instagram picture. And there's no reason for her to be talking to me at mm-hmm, all, mm-hmm. right, except to scam me. Mm-hmm. But the more I thought about it, they, this was actually my personal Instagram account. I don't want to use my personal Instagram account to do this because of exactly these reasons. I don't want to give too much information to these people. I don't want these people to know who I am because there are actually pictures of me on that profile. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm much more keen to starting up a fake account, but even that, I don't know. Maybe there's some information they can glean from that. Yeah. It, I live it, in a fairly populous area, though. Interesting point that they make that when you engage with these criminals, it could be like catching a tiger by the tail. Yeah. In that, okay, they may be coming at you with something this time that's pretty easy for you to detect. Right. But that doesn't mean they don't have more powerful tools in their toolbox. Right. And if you annoy them, they may be able to come back at you just out of spite. Right. So I guess don't underestimate them. Best to just leave them alone. Let them move on to someone else. Right. I suppose on one level, I mean, you and I have talked about the need to sort of waste their time and change the economic proposition. Right. So there's that. Right. But I I don't know. I I guess there are good points here that uh, unless you really know what you're doing, you could be in for more than what you counted. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Well, those are our stories. It's time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day was sent in by a listener named Daryl. He is from Australia, and he sent a, a series of text messages that he received He's sort of stringing along the person, which, uh, so there you go, shows, uh, do as I say, not as I do, I guess. Uh, (laughs) uh, This is a fun exchange. Uh, I will play the part of the person reaching out to Daryl, and uh, Joe, you can play the part of Daryl, and it goes like this. Want to meet? Yes. Which campsite do I need to go to that doesn't require my credit card number? I need a casual sex partner. First time. I am a escort girl in your area. Copy my link and paste your browser. Just join there and call me live there. I am waiting for you there. It's free join. Just do the free register and call me. Does anyone fall for this? Just copy my profile link and paste your browser, then put any mail on there and call me face to face. There must be a few. I checked that link. Totally unsecure. You should probably just get a job. It's totally free. No need to CC. You can check it now and call me on there, babe. I'm waiting for you on there. Yeah, it's totally a scam and the URL is listed as malicious. I reported it. You should be done soon. Also, your VPN is outdated and easy to bypass. Just copy my profile link and paste your browser, then put any mail on there. What is it with your country and scams? Also, really easy to track you now. WTF, bye. (laughs) Ha ha, quit scamming. I can't believe how many times you sent this out. How many people fall for it? Bye, you just lost real girl. Good luck. You have real files on this device. Dumb move. I am fake, so bye. Please stop massage me. 
and it ends there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks to Daryl for sending that in. Uh, He certainly wasted a little bit of that scammer's time. So uh, (laughs) they're coming for you, (laughs) Daryl. Yeah, that's right. Heads up. Yeah. Shields up. Shields up. All right. That is our catch of the day. Coming up next, Carol Terrio returns. She's got an interview with Chris Olson from the Media Trust on how targeted advertising can enable election interference. And we are back. Joe, it's always great when Carol Terrio returns. She's got a great interview this week. She talks with Chris Olson. He's from the Media Trust. And they're going to be talking about election interference. Here's Carol Terrio. Election time is certainly gaining momentum in the States. And there is a lot of talk about how the U.S. can better protect itself against nefarious schemes afoot to make the process of voting, well, less honorable and transparent. Now, there have always been miscreants out there who've tried to sway a election, be it from class president to POTUS heights. But the methods they are now employing are light years away from more traditional approaches. Chris Olson, the CEO of Media Trust, an information security company based in the U.S., kindly agreed to give us a bit more insight on what voters need to watch out for. Chris, thank you so much for making the time to chat to us today. Yeah, thanks for having me today. So tell me a bit about you and Media Trust. What do you guys do? So the Media Trust goal is to fix the internet by creating better digital ecosystems, governing assets. Assets are our websites and mobile applications, and then enabling digital risk management. Digital risk management covers malvertising, data compliance, and then disinformation campaigns in elections. Okay, now I hear you are warning folks about electoral manipulation. And this is, for many obvious reasons, a serious topic. Can you frame this up for us? Like, what do you mean by electoral manipulation? So in today's landscape, the digital ecosystem is designed to deliver content that is targeting each of us individually. So each of our experiences on the World Wide Web is unique. For example, if you were to visit a news website from where you're sitting today, and I was going to visit it from Virginia, just based on our geography, we're going to get significantly different information, Mm. different content, and different advertising. That's all built on the backs of third-party code that has been proliferating over the last roughly 15 years as the World Wide Web has become a predominant method of communication, commerce, et cetera. For election messaging, what's critical is that the ability to target messaging to each individual consumer, on top of what you referenced, which is there are politicians and then other, other groups that are attempting to, uh, to get people to think in certain ways, um, creates a perfect storm where consumers don't know where the information that they're reading is coming from. And from that perspective, it means that users have to be very careful what they take is the truth, and they have to start to understand as much about where information is coming from as what the message itself is saying. You know, when I look at my news feeds, if I see a headline, you know, that might be clickjacky or certainly piques my interest, I will check the source before I click on it. And I tend to only click on sources I know, which, you know, is in a good thing and a bad thing, I suppose. Yeah. And, and I would say that, that you're probably uh, educated versus the, the typical consumer. And, and in addition to that, you're wary of, of people trying to deliver messaging to you and the concept of presenting information that would cause you to click and just move into content based on maybe commercial reasons. And then commercial being, they're trying to get you to do something to make money. So the typical consumer is not thinking about those things. And if something sensational is in front of them or something that would pique their interest based on prior behavior, they're typically clicking there first before doing any analysis. 
course, I'm based here in the UK, you're based in the States, and we are going to see different types of ads and news feeds come into our news feeds, right? Different stories are going to show up for you than will for me. So how is that used to manipulate elections? Okay, so it's a, it's a great question. One of the ways is the way that advertising has been designed to meet a consumer or to, to bring specific information to particular target audiences that actually pays for the free World Wide Web that we all get to use. Okay. So if you've been to websites before, say a travel site or a retail site, you've looked to purchase something, you've then left the site, and suddenly there's advertisements, big display ads or video ads or more subtle things, um, or even articles on uh, websites that you've gone to after leaving um, that site or that app, or even after having visited the store, right? So if you've physically gone into a store and you've left and you go home, you look at a website and there's advertising there. That is built on the back of, of what we call third-party code. And third-party code is, is made from you know, roughly, there, there are a few hundred companies that really manage the predominance of that. There are thousands of companies that engage in that activity. And so that capability of knowing your predilections and your preferences, and then bringing you messaging, be it advertising or content, is built into and, and part right. of the World Wide Web. Political candidates, political advertising, and political messaging literally leverages the exact same infrastructure to target consumers with information. The way that they're manipulated goes back to pre-digital days and that particular constituencies with particular goals of moving different people in a direction, whether that's to get them to vote for someone, it's to sow discord, it's to get them to go out on the street to protest. Those are more, what we would say, more nefarious use cases. And in particular, they're nefarious if the deliverer is obfuscating or not telling the truth about who they are when they deliver those messages or if the messages are simply false. Okay, so say I'm a consumer, I'm in some demographic, and I'm being targeted with false information. And it's, it's all geared up to attract me, to allure me in, to engage me, right? That's right. And yep. so from an election perspective, how are people supposed to fight back? First, consumers can see very little. It's not easy for them to notice these things are, are false. And it's especially true when they read something and their emotions get peaked, they forget to remember that they're supposed to care who sent them the message. But they can't see much, but they can know a lot of things. So first, they, unfortunately today, most of what is delivered on the World Wide Web can't be trusted. It doesn't mean that most of it isn't true, but it can't be trusted. So skepticism is the first step. And, and once you're skeptical and understanding that something is being targeted to you for a purpose rather than you just stumbled upon the information and you know that there are people with some form of uh, a goal behind it that they're trying to get you to do something, you can look at it in a different way. One of the things which we just mentioned is if you know the author, and, and you know, of course, they can fake that they're the author, a, a bad guy would do that. But if you know the author, that's a great step. Messages that do no attribution to a candidate, those would be things that they should watch out for. And then this is where it gets really difficult. But outlandish claims, you really need to check yourself. Outlandish claims are you know, likely not true. They can be true occasionally. But for, for the most part, those things that seem either too good to be true or too terrible to be true, depending on your predilection, probably are. Do you think that if people just stopped sharing content based on just click baity headlines and actually read the article and thought, okay, actually that has got some juice to it, or that's something useful that might help ebb the flow of disinformation. So I, I, I think that something like that would help, but I, I think that may be asking too much of 
human nature. And, and so I, I do, <laughs> you're probably right. I, I do think that it falls back on the big platforms, the news websites. There historically, prior to digital, was an editor that would know what was going to be produced on, say, a, a, a newspaper, right? Something that was actually printed. And so that there was at least wh- whether that person is biased or not really isn't the important part. It's that there was a, a person or a group of people that looked before anything was delivered. We, we knew they were biased, but we at least knew their biases and we had an expectation of them. Today, that editorial step is skipped. And it doesn't mean that all of the content on newspaper sites isn't read by an editor and approved. A lot of it is. But significant portions of websites are moving much too fast. In addition, because of third-party code and targeting, the editors aren't able to see a lot of the content before it runs because it isn't targeted to them or to the groups of people that they've hired to review the content. So there's too much. It's targeted so they can't see it. And then I think the final piece is where we've gone over the last year or two is to, to try to, to put them into a corner of being a moderator, which gets into a free speech conversation, which in the West is a problem, rather than forcing them to expose and know who is delivering the content. Chris, I could talk to you all day about this. It's fascinating. Yeah, thank you. I, but for our listeners, I think the overall message is keep your wits about you folks. Things are heating up out there. This was Carol Terrio for Hacking Humans. All right, Joe, what do you think? Good interview. I like what Chris has to say in this interview. The first thing he says that everybody should pay attention to and be aware of is that the content on the web is tailored to you individually. Mm-hmm. It is remarkably tailored thanks to all this third-party code that Chris is talking about. And a lot of this information that's coming to us, consumers of this information have no idea where it's coming from. They just don't know. Yeah, it struck me, um, one of the things he said was, when this information is coming at you, someone will send you something that'll push your buttons right. and your emotions make you forget to check the source. Yep. You're so wound up about this either terrible thing or great thing that you see come by mm-hmm. that you hit the share button before you go and check to see, wait a minute, where did this come from? I see this all the time on my feed on yeah. Facebook. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have friends who are very pro-Trump and friends that are very anti-Trump, mm, right? Mm-hmm. And it's funny to watch what they share because they share exactly this kind of stuff where they haven't thought about it. Mm-hmm. And these are otherwise smart people. Right. You know, these are people who I have respect for in other fields. I generally tend to not have respect for anybody else's political opinion but my own. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I don't expect anybody to respect my political opinion. Okay. So I'm, I'm okay with that. Right. right? Okay. And, and I guarantee you, dear listener, you don't agree with me on everything. Yeah. You and I are going to find some point of disagreement. You know what? That's okay. But you can't let your emotions get in the way of your thought process and your validation process here. I also think that some of us, I like to think of myself on social media, on Facebook, places like that. I really work hard at being a trusted source. Yeah. Like I, before I share something, I go and check the sources or I will try to frame it and say, hey, you know, here's an interesting article from an admittedly left wing source or a a well-known right wing source. And so I've seen you do that. At least you, you know what the source is. And so my hope is that when people see something coming from me, they'll know that it's been to some degree vetted by me. But but more importantly, I have other people on social media who I feel the same way about. If I see something come from them based on their past history, I expect that I'm going to spend more time on the things they share because of the thoughtfulness they put into researching things before they share them. Be that person. I generally don't share... (laughs) 
or don't share political stuff on Facebook. I don't think it's useful or on Twitter. I, I just think that because the web is so tailored to our experience, what happens is you wind up in an echo chamber. It's just not helpful. It doesn't let you consider other people's opinions. It invalidates them out of the box with crash and harsh languages. And I, I don't think it's constructive at all. Skepticism is the first step. I like that he says that. Mm. Understand that when you see an ad, that ad is being targeted to you and to you alone. Just like Chris was talking about when you go to like Amazon.com. I go to Amazon and I'll look up something. And then as soon as I leave Amazon, I'll get the ads for what I was just looking at. Right. Right. right yeah. And it, it's irritating because sometimes it's the ads for something I've just bought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I already so, own it. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm not going to buy it again. Yeah, Thanks. Too late. No, I, I don't need two of those cars. Another thing that struck me is kind of funny, but also kind of sad. Asking people to read the article is asking too much. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> no, no, I just want to share this article, no. the headline that matches with my, my worldview and, right. uh, and let everybody else deal with their emotions on it. Yeah. I think that's kind of irresponsible. Like you said, look for people who are the trusted source, but I'm firmly of the opinion that if you're talking political stuff, don't get it on Facebook or on any social media platform. Yeah. Where should you go then? You should do your due diligence as a uh, political member of whatever society you live in and go to a, a, a news source that you trust and go to multiple news sources that you trust and find out there are websites out there that talk about these biases. All these news sources have the biases. Those biases are open and analyzed, but you should look at something that not only aligns with your opinions, but also read something from somebody who disagrees with you on the position. Yeah. Right. Maybe there's something you're missing that you're not considering in this. Right. Be deliberate about breaking yourself out of your, your own bubble. I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, again, thanks to uh, Carol Terrio for bringing this story to us. And thanks to Chris Olson from the Media Trust for sharing his expertise. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.